Aloha North Kohala. It's Holly Allgood here on Tutu's Talk Story at KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala. Today my very special guest is Dorn Barnett, who's been a long-time member of the North Kohala community. Dawn is a obstetrics nurse at North Hawaii Hospital, and she is also the founder of Be Divine uh, and has been a beekeeper for quite some time. Welcome, Dawn. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, where, are you, where, did you, where were you born, Dawn? Where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in Los Angeles, um, but I wasn't raised there. By the time I was two and a half, uh, my family of four kids and my parents moved to Africa. We lived in uh, Kenya, uh, which is in East Africa, for about a year and a half. <clears throat> and just quickly, then we were in Illinois, Bloomington, Illinois, for another year to year and a half. Iowa City, Iowa, for another year and a half or so. Um, and then we went back to Africa and lived in Tanzania for another year and a half so when I was eight and nine years old. Well, <coughs> stop a second. Tell us what's all this wandering. <laughs> so my dad was going to UCLA and uh, in getting a PhD in anthropology. And so he was interested in revolution in Africa. And <coughs> he wrote his thesis on the Mau Mau revolution in Kenya and wrote a book called Mau Mau From Within, which um, there, even though my father passed away in 1975 at 45 years of age, um, they are now wanting to republish that book uh, that he wrote. So he was doing research and writing um, on various things. Initially, it was in the Kenya. And then uh, when we went back to Tanzania, he contacted people that were mm, doing revolution. Um, they were Portuguese colonies. There's three of them. And he ended up going to Angola for quite some time and wrote another book called um, Revolution in Angola. And then many small books that we published, um, some of them life histories from the revolution. <coughs> And so after 500 years of colonial rule from the Portuguese and prior to that, the, the French, these colonies um, <coughs> um, became independent. And he was part of um, making that known to the rest of the world. And that was his passion. But then he died of a heart attack at 45. Well, my goodness. So what? So you were there at age one, and then again at age six or seven. It, actually, I was there from two to I turned two and three, uh, three and four when I was in Kenya, and then I turned eight and nine when I was in Tanzania. And I went to the end of the third grade and all of the fourth grade in Swahili because he sent us to the local public school. <laughs> and what is your memory of that? Um, I remember it. <clears throat> Um, it was just so different, you know, being in, a, in such a different culture. And um, Did you learn any of the language? I learned Swahili, and at this point I'm 62, and I, re- I know how to say, come here, sit down, hello, <laughs> and um, count to 10 <laughs> in Swahili. <laughs> and uh, I think I could understand it at the time, but I did never became fluent at it. But my, my father and my brother were were fluent in Swahili at one point. <coughs> so do you remember it being difficult or fun, or what, what are your memories of those times? Um, 
I, I think that it gave me a foundation of recognizing um, that there's no right way to do anything in the world because every culture and people um, do things differently. And so I think it just gave me like a broader perspective on the world, on people, <clears throat> than people have who've just been, you know, in one place all their lives. So I think it just, um, you know, just kind of gave me a foundation um, um, to see the world differently than mainstream people do that haven't traveled and actually lived in other, especially third world countries. When you uh, came back to the United States, where did you go next? <coughs> or did you go come back to the United States so after, after Tanzania? Tanzania, we came, <coughs> I spent the summer in L.A., and then we went to, my father got a job in at Simon Fraser University and uh, in Vancouver, B.C., Canada. And so um, his first semester was research, and he was still in Angola, almost died there, and uh and then we um, settled in Vancouver for um, about the next eight years. Uh, so I basically went to um, <clears throat> school from like the sixth grade through graduation in, in Vancouver. And what was that from like? Vancouver is known as one of the <laughs> nicest cities in the world. Um, yeah, it, it's a pretty interesting city. We actually lived um, the majority, like six years of that time in. Uh, Richmond, which is Lulu Island, which is like below sea level, and <laughs> there's ditches everywhere. And um, so it was pretty rural, you know, and um, it, it, it was okay. It, um, yeah, it was okay. It, it, it um, was a nice place to, to land and finish school and everything. Um, but uh, was it hard for you to adjust <laughs> to yet another country? <laughs> Well, it's very similar to the United States, so it wasn't really so much another country, you know, speak English and stuff. Although I did learn, instead of Spanish, uh, you know, we were learning French um, through high school and stuff. Um, <clears throat> I found it a little bit difficult in my, you know, first couple of years. Um, uh, rural areas, um, um, the the kids that have had no white experience, um, uh, how shall I want to say is the teachers were interested to talk to me. I, ha I had just, I was more articulate and just had all this vast experience already by the time I was 10 and so, and 12 years old. And so, um, I, I had a difficult time fitting in with the kids, um, <clears throat> because, uh, we just didn't have that much in common or, you know, um, right. they didn't have any life experience as I had. And so, mm -hmm. and so it was a little bit difficult. It was, it was fine. I mean, so long as I had a, you know, one friend or something, it it was fine. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I remember having a kind of a tough time in the sixth grade, just uh, adjusting mm -hmm. um, to being around kids that age. Who didn't <clears throat> have the same worldly experience. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so, so what happened after you graduated high school in Canada? Uh, um, well, my father had created an organization, you know, where we were doing publishing <laughs> initially, like in our basement, and then, and then we had a bigger shop. But so we were doing writing, uh, they were doing writing and publishing. So um, 
when I graduated, I um, joined this organization that was called um, a Liberation Support Movement. And um, <clears throat> so initially, I uh, through high school, and then afterwards, I was working with them. And then my first jobs, I worked at the airport, the, the Vancouver International Airport, as a janitoress, <laughs> cleaning. That was my first job outside of uh, our group. And um, did I do anything else after that? I think so. Then when I was 17. So my father died when I was 16. And we actually had members of this group that were in New York and the Bay Area and Vancouver. And after he died, we decided to consolidate. And so me and my family and this whole group of people all went to the Bay Area. So at that point in time, when I was 17, I moved to the Bay Area. And um, well, it sounds like that must have also been quite a shock that your father who had been such a a force in you going all around the world died at such a young age. Yes. And you were so young. Yes, yes. I had, um, it was uh, definitely a, a difficult transition. Um, I had dreams for years that he was just testing us. He was pretty <coughs> authoritarian and, um, you know, really from that era where children should, you know, be seen but not heard and should kind of militaristic almost, you know, when you, when I say jump, you see how high. So he was, he was a difficult person to, to, um, to grow up with, um, kind of harsh. And so, um, it was also just shocking, you know, when, that he died. Um, so I kept thinking he was just gonna show back up and he had just been testing us or something. So it took a while, <clears throat> but, um, yeah, everything really changed after that, and then and then I moved to the Bay Area, and after a year or two, the group kind of uh, semi disbanded, and I moved from Oakland, uh, where I was living in a household with some other members, um, to San Francisco, and then I started going to college there. <clears throat> and what what were you doing at college? What were you, did you decide you were to do? Well, the truth is that, that I'm an artist, <laughs> um, and um, but <clears throat> my sister, who's four years older than me, she went to was in college and doing a lot of art classes, and and um, you know we did graphic arts and we were publishing and stuff. So I was kind of already in the field, but I realized, and I'm so grateful that I did that <clears throat> that being an artist and getting you know and making a living is is a difficult thing. And that you kind of have to not only be a good artist, but you have to be able to sell yourself. And, and sometimes you have to be able to do advertising and do a lot of things that aren't necessarily um, <clears throat> fulfilling, the you know, on the heart level. And so <clears throat> one of the members in the group um, was a nurse and a single mom, and she really inspired me. And so, uh, you know, when I went to college, I, I went to, to be a nurse. And... Um, I'm really, really grateful that, that I made that choice and that decision. I didn't do it immediately after high school, but within a couple of years. <clears throat> and so by the time I was like 21, I had an RN, and and I was always interested in, um, in birthing, and um, I wanted to be a midwife um, at, when I was younger, but I also didn't want to just, uh, you know, go to San Francisco General and... And, and learn. 
how all the doctors do it and just regurgitate that information. So I ended up not becoming a midwife, but I work with midwives, love midwives, love the whole process, have been to many home births and, you know, on and off throughout my career. Um, so, uh, and I just want to say, so being a nurse at age 21, that pretty much you could get a job anywhere you want, anywhere in the world. I think that's one of the things about, right. I see nurses really have really good job security. Yes, and that is something I'm very, very grateful for, that um, I, I do feel lucky and um, grateful that I made those choices when I did, because I can still do my art and my passions, my other passions, but I don't have to rely on them you know, to pay the mortgage and, and my other bills and things like that. And so, and I really love my job. I've been at North Hawaii <coughs> for, I don't know, 23 years or something now. And um, I'm, I, I just love the work that I do with my patients, um, helping them through their labor and their delivery and then teaching them, you know, bonding and breastfeeding and just a lot of teaching. And um, so that is a very fulfilling. Uh, it's a service. And um, I live in a fairly small community, and many women from our community come and have their babies there, and they know me, and <clears throat> it just feels like I participate in the community in a, a really deep, rich way by um, being there present and assisting, you know, for people and giving birth. So I, I love my job. I don't like many of the politics and some of the things that go on with how things are run, you know, systems. Um, but um, the actual work that I do with my patients is extremely rewarding and fulfilling. And I'm really grateful that I made the choices I did back when I was younger that uh, allow me that um, <clears throat> that stability, security, and fulfillment. And as yeah. you say, you have a deep connection with the community. I know when I mention to people, oh, Dawn's going to be on the radio show, it's like, oh, she delivered my daughter, or oh, she delivered my granddaughter. Right, mm -hmm. and that is really such a good feeling. I also, when my children were <clears throat> really young, I did home health for about, uh, kind of on and off for about four years, and um, that also was really nice um, to be here in the community and go into people's homes, and, you know, um, it's not my calling, because mostly what you're doing is making sure that they're taking all their medications and all that, and I'm much more of a naturalist <coughs> and think that we should be getting <laughs> off of our medications and that pharmaceutical companies kind of own the planet <laughs> and the world, the government, the media, um, so I'm not f pro uh, pharmaceuticals and uh, at all, and so that is one of the reasons why it's nice to be in the birthing department because, you know, when people are pregnant, they kind of limit <laughs> the types of uh, and amounts of pharmaceuticals given. So um, yeah, even though I really liked the home health and going into people's homes in the community, it 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 was a role that I I didn't <clears throat> love because of the the way that Western medicine works, um, it was a bit contradictory for me. So I also worked for Dr. Thal for six years, and we did um, natural medicine, chelation therapy, you know, to help people eliminate heavy metals. And um, so I learned a lot um, in the, the, that time with him. 
um, about alternative medicine and alternative ways of health because I feel like um, mostly Western medicine's awesome when it comes to acute things and surgeries and things, but when it comes to any kind of long-term disease process that, um, <clears throat> you know, we're not, we're only treating symptoms and we're not getting to root cause and we're not getting to health. It's all about disease and, and it's a, a business that, that makes money off of people's disease. Um, and so I'm not in favor of just the, the way that the system works, especially Well, well before we leave the topic of being a nurse in the obstetrics area, do you have any advice for our listeners out there who either are pregnant or have little ones that things that you've seen over the years, because I'm sure you've seen thousands of babies, and what any thoughts about baby health or advice you want to give to our audience? Mm-hmm. <coughs> oh, I have so much advice, but I don't know <laughs> if I want to put it on the air. Um, you know, just birth itself, um, uh, it doesn't happen as much as it used to. Like, I, I worked in the Bay Area for 10 years before coming here. I got here in 92, and then there wasn't the hospital there. You know, that's it, it, North Hawaii didn't open until um, 96, um, <clears throat> which is also why I did home health at the time, because I moved to Koala in 93. Um, <clears throat> but especially when I was in California, everybody came in with their birth plan, and they didn't want this and didn't want that. And and um, they kind of came in being educated that, that we were going to be doing things that they needed to make sure didn't happen. And so those kinds of ideas that are placed in people's heads sometimes by you know, um, prenatal classes and things like that um, often set people up to be focused on what they don't want and then they get what they don't want rather than just trusting that they're choosing the right providers and the right place to go and then just allowing it to unfold as it needs to unfold and um, <clears throat> trusting. And so to, to give birth, you need to be in a, that place of um, surrender and trust and openness and um, relaxation, you know, let like let your brain go and and let the body do its thing. And and so the more people are attached to a certain outcome, the more they don't get that outcome, for the most part, because um, of this attachment. So I think that that's one of the biggest things that I've just seen in my almost forty years now. Um, <clears throat> is um, people's attachment to how to get from here to having that baby in my arms. Um, it's just a journey, and each one is different, and it's it's very circumstantial. I mean, there's just so many different factors. And the more we have an attachment to it being a certain way, the the harder it is to, you know, get to that outcome. So be open to what the birth may be. Yeah, the process, mm-hmm. the... The journey is just the journey, and what what what's the most important thing is that you're safe, and and both you and the baby are safe and healthy, and how you get from pregnancy to <laughs> to having the baby, you know, you, nobody has control over that. And, um, and well, and and as far as safe and healthy, any advice to make sure you and the baby are safe and healthy? Um. Yeah, eat as much organic food as possible, you know, like just be mindful of your nutrition and, um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, you drink lots of water. You need more and more water um, as you get more 
towards the end of your pregnancy because you're um, get, having more and more blood that feeds the placenta and the uterus. And by the time you're giving birth, you have about twice as much volume of blood. And it actually takes, you know, like a gallon of water a day to, you know, maintain that mm-hmm. and not be dehydrated. And so especially towards the end, you know, making sure all the time that you're hydrated well mm-hmm. with the water mm-hmm. um, is extremely important. And also it can, um, just dehydration itself can put you into labor early, but it won't be a functional, actual real labor. It'll be, um, you know, like once if we hydrate you with IV fluids or even oral fluids, um, sometimes everything stops, you know, because your uterus gets, you know, is stretched out and it gets irritable. And and so, you know, drink your water, staying hydrated is the one of the keys, you know, Mm -hmm. in particular at the end, but all the way through it, you gradually need more and more water. And uh, I think people aren't necessarily told that or people forget, you know, it's, it's a little, it's hard to drink a gallon of water a day, you know, mm-hmm. so you have to make it an intention, you know, mm-hmm. to do that and eat well mm-hmm. and get your, you know, your walks and, <laughs> you know, try and keep fit. I, you know, sometimes people that are overly fit, you know, yoga teachers and stuff, they sometimes have a hard time too because, you know, their tissues don't want to stretch and, you know, so, so there's, you know, you could be both under or over fit. Mm-hmm. I mean, more people are under fit than over, but, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've seen some people, you know, have a harder time just stretching and opening, you mm-hmm. know, if mm-hmm. they're super toned. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So I'm realizing as you're telling us about this that we skipped over how you got to Hawaii. Oh, got to Hawaii. Oh. How did you get to Hawaii? Yeah, so I was living in Northern California, like after my father passed, and I went to the Bay Area. I lived all over the Bay Area, like Oakland, San Francisco, Albany, Berkeley, and then Sebastopol. So I'd been living in Sebastopol for a couple years. And um, really, it was a a magical thing. I um, kind of in meditation or whatever, I was told to uh, go to Mount Shasta, and I went to Mount Shasta. It was a very special time. They said 11-11, I'm not sure why, but it was like January of um, 92, I think. And um, anyways, uh, I kind of was like in a meditative space up in Mount Shasta, and I was told to go to Hawaii to this hypnotherapy training. I'd already taken the training, but I was coming like as an assistant um, to delve into it a little deeper. So... I, uh, so I came for this hypnotherapy training in, um, you know, like April of 92. And when, uh, when the plane landed in Hawaii, I had actually been to Oahu a couple times, you know, for vacations and stuff, but I'd never been to the big island and the class was here at the big island in Kona. And when the plane landed, this voice came in my head and said, welcome home. And I burst into tears and I was like, what? (laughs) Like it was a really, uh, I hadn't had really that kind of experience ever in my life, Um, even though I was actually doing shamanic work and uh, journey work. I was making drums and actually teaching um, shamanic journeys uh, also. um, But to just out of nowhere, you know, have like a voice, you know, speak to me, it was was very emotional. And uh, so I was like, wow, that's really trippy. And, And so I did my training and I met a whole bunch of people and um, I was here for about three and a half weeks, and I met someone here, had a little affair while I was here, and then 
I went home, back to California, Sebastopol, and, and I just, when I would think about my future, it, it was sort of like, if I thought about staying, if I thought about coming to back to Hawaii, it was just like this big opening in my heart and all this energy. And if I thought about just staying where I was, doing the same thing I was doing, there was sort of like a dead feeling. And so pretty much five months to the day uh, that I landed here and that experience happened with the voice, um, I moved here. And because I'm a nurse, um, I was able to just know that I would get a job and I'd met a bunch of people and... I hadn't, I was in my 30s and hadn't had any real long-term relationships. And so the, the man that I met, you know, was like, yeah, please. Um, so he ended up being, uh, we were got into a, a real relationship and we had two children. We were together for about 10 years and um, <clears throat> we are no longer together. Um, but we have two wonderful kids that are in their 20s that are actually nice people <laughs> thank god uh not drug addicts or <laughs> in jail or anything weird and um upstanding people in society or you know members of the community so i'm grateful that that uh that turned out as good as it did <laughs> with my children and um yeah we moved up here in may of 93 and um there wasn't that hospital, so I was doing home. So I did home health, and then once the hospital opened up, I went there uh, um, to North Hawaii and started doing birthing there. So yeah, it was it was a, a calling. I mean, I felt that more than the relationship um, that was kind of happening, that it was like the Aina that called me. You know, the Aina. I just felt really strongly pulled, and like um, that maybe in previous lifetimes, I'm from here. <clears throat> um, that just felt like home, and even when I leave, which I don't haven't done that much in the twenty almost nine years I've been here, um, I've only left about five times, and um, whenever I come back, and especially driving up to Koala, I just feel like ah, I'm home. <laughs> so it definitely feels like home to me, and in fact, with all the pandemic, pandemic happening, um, I, yeah, don't feel any big burning need to go anywhere at this point in time. And if I, in fact, have to stay here for the rest of my life, then I'm okay with that. <laughs> so I'm curious, since you brought up the pandemic, and you're a nurse at the hospital, mm -hmm. what is that like being a nurse at a hospital at this point in time, even though you're, it sounds like your focus is still in the obstetrics area. I'm sure it's had an impact. Yeah, well, we have to wear masks and goggles the whole time we're there unless we're eating. They took all the other chairs. There's only one chair allowed in our <laughs> lounge, you know, where we eat. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we have to check in every morning, uh, take our temperature and answer a bunch of questions and stuff. Um, so... Uh, and then they're trying to vaccinate the community, and so we're being asked to go um, to the vaccine clinic and, and help out with that. Um, I, I'm not going to be vaccinated because I just don't think that the science is um, good enough to risk it, so... That's just a, a very personal opinion. choice. Right. <laughs> it's, yes. it's 
it's a very personal choice, and I understand that everybody's got their their feelings and their ideas about it, and that's just. Is it true that I, I understand some people will might even lose their jobs if they don't get vaccinated? Not at this time. What what happens is that there isn't enough vaccines. You know, the supply versus the demand is really not in balance at all yet. And so, you know, at this point in time, it is not mandatory, and I'm grateful for that. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, we'll just see what happens as time goes on. Um, once the majority of the people that want to be vaccinated are, and then we'll see what happens following that. We're talking to Dorn Barnett here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. We're going to take our mid-show station break. We'll be right back and we'll hear about Be Divine. Aloha North Kohala. Kohala Cares has moved its weekly food drive from Sushi Rock to the Hub parking lot. Those in need can drive to the parking lot and pick up a bag of groceries. Pickup begins at 4.30 every Wednesday. Please wear a mask. Donations, especially produce, will be accepted Tuesday from 1.30 to 4 and Wednesday from 3 to 4.30. We want to thank all our donors and volunteers for making all this happen. Remember, we're all in this together. Mahalo. Aloha, this is Isla and Mikkel Anna, and we would love to invite you to join us for Activated Intuitive Talk Story. Yes, join us the first Wednesdays of each month from 3 to 4 p.m. Tune in locally at 96.1 FM or live stream from anywhere at knkr.org. And Isla, where would people go if they'd like to tune in to previous shows? I'm so glad you asked because they are located on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts under Intuitive Talk Story. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And we look forward to igniting with you soon. Aloha, Tali Allgood on Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. My special guest today is Dawn Barnett, who is also the founder of Be Divine. So Dawn, tell us, what is Be Divine? <laughs> well, I think I even came up with the name before I did much else and, and made my first business card before I even had any bees. Um, I got really inspired, um, let's see, what year was it? Probably, oh, I think we started in 2013, <clears throat> is that I started hearing all kinds of information about um, colony collapse all over the, the mainland, and, um, you know, just uh, all of a sudden had this, you know, awareness that what, like Einstein said, four years without bees and maybe we don't have enough food to feed ourselves and leading to extinction. So um, all of a sudden it just came into my awareness and so I started looking around and I'd heard of a, a young woman on the Pune side that was teaching classes and I had a friend I visited and said, do you know where she lives? And I went knocking on doors and I, I found Jen Rasmussen and um, bought two beehive boxes that were top bar hives um, that day and she already had uh, a scheduled um, a class that she was doing up here at the intergenerational center 
um, a few months later. <clears throat> and so I just um, had her bring me some bees to put in the boxes that I'd purchased from her um, when she came up to do that class. And then I <clears throat> went, you know, she was doing classes once a month, like the first Saturday or something, all day Saturday classes um, for a couple of years. And um, I, over the next couple of years after that, I went to those classes about eight or nine times and would drive down and <clears throat> take the class and spend the night and, you know, work with her bees and then um, worked. Actually, the first after, I didn't really know quite what to do with mine. And then um, actually Christy Krantz and, um, and her, um, <clears throat> Maya, her like stepdaughter at the time, um, came over one day and like helped me check my bees and I was like okay I know what to do <laughs> and I and I just uh, started doing it and um, <clears throat> after doing bees you know me and my daughter each had one hive and then we bought a couple of more hives and then uh, we just um, just both of us got really in, in, into it and then Mariah actually took classes my daughter um in Hilo with Jen at the at the university or the college there and uh so we just felt so what happened was in 2007 and 8 the varroa mite ended up on this island that had never been here before followed in 2010 by the small hive beetle which also hadn't been here before and just like kind of when People conquer a land and, and come and bring disease that they've never experienced before. They wipe out whole populations like what happened to the Hawaiians. Um, you know, up to 85% um, were killed off by these diseases brought by the whites. And the same thing happened to the bees. And so uh, there's been different statistics I've seen, but 70 to 85% of all the bees were wiped out in the process of those diseases ending up probably coming on ships like hitchhiking or whatever um, <clears throat> and coming here and they, they just like killed off all the bees because not all but like 70 to 85% because they just had never you know seen them before but then they so what happened was and this was like a couple years at least before I got involved but like um, what happened was he all he wild bees, commercial bees, they all like really had a hard time with this. And so the ones that were left, you know, developed ways to, to handle it. Um, and most of the beekeepers at the time, um, especially the commercial ones, um, just went right out and bought chemicals for their hives, like miticides and other kinds of things that would, you know, help, um, taking a bunch of antibiotics, you know, to try and kill off these pests. Um, whereas Jen, um, our teacher, she was like, you know, bought the products and then just didn't feel right about it. And so she thought, well, maybe if I just like really tend them, steward them in a way that, that helps them build up their own immune system and their own ways to handle these pests, you know, then I won't have to use these chemicals. And so, you know, it worked out for her. And even though i I'm not very good with numbers, but I believe she had like 70 or maybe 75 hives at the time that this happened. And um, she was wiped out down to like three or four hives. And um, so everybody pretty much was in that situation and they all were scrambling. So she chose not to go that route. And 
some people weren't very happy with her, but but really her bees got strong. And what they do, you know, is they they propolize the corner. You know, they they can't sting those beetles. You know, and so they would make make gels for them. And then we figured out at first they were doing. Wait 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 wait. <coughs> You're going kind of quickly. Did you say the bees would make gels for the beetles? Yes. Could you could you tell <laughs> us a little more about that? All right. Well, first I want to say I'll get back to that in a second because the other the first thing that people did, like Jen and others, is that we is that they built a tray on the bottom that they put oil in, and then but then you know d- using oil, and then what do you do? How, you, how do you throw it in the ground and stuff like that? So you know then they some people switch to diatomaceous earth, which is you know friendly to uh, the environment. You can put it in your garden or whatever. I mean, it's not good for insects. It's also not good for bees. But so they, they found a, t- a type of mesh screen that they would put at the bottom and then you know drop down about three or four inches and then have a tray in there with the diatomaceous earth. And so the bees could knock. You know, they can't sting those beetles because they have this hard shell. They're like half the size of a of, of a ladybug, but it's a little black shell that's really hard. And so what they could do is move them and corral them around. So they could knock them off the walls and they would go down through the mesh into the diatomaceous earth and then they would get smothered there and that, that would kill them. But they would also corral them into the corners um, and, and then propolize around them. And then over time, they would just die because they couldn't move in and out of these little jails. So when you're saying propolize around them, it was almost like they were building a structure of propolis, which is Pro- not not beeswax and it's not honey. No, it's Tell comes- us what does it look like? <laughs> I know we've heard about it in beauty stores, right. but not as jails. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, propolis, you know, all over the world is different because it, it comes from sap from tr- trees. So, you know, each tree has a different kind of sap. And so they just collect whatever sap is nearby, and then they use it like a glue. Uh, I mean, they put it through their systems and their bodies, and, um, you know, so they, so it's sap, and then it goes through their system, and and it's their, their protection um, from water getting in, from pests getting in. So it's almost to like the hives. So they bee caulk, caulk. Yes, <laughs> and it's antiviral, antibacterial. I mean, it's it's it, you know, it's a really great stuff. We you know we collected, and I, I I, I haven't yet done it, but <laughs> I my dream is to uh, um to create a product, you know, with the propolis that we can use both internally and externally, like tinctures and sprays. You can spray it into your throat when you got a sore throat, and you can um, put it on any kind of abrasion, and it helps to heal. And um, <clears throat> so I have, um, I have, um, all, well, okay, we'll get into that in a minute. So, yeah, we we realized, Jen realized that she, that we could actually just like really help steward the bees um, in, in a way, you know, checking them. And so like the small hive beetle wants to lay their eggs in the drone brood, which are slightly bigger hexagons that takes three more days for them to hatch. And so if you remove some of the drone brood, you can pull out... It's not the beetle, actually. That's for the ro- to help minimize the varroa mite. So that's <clears throat> and drone brood is like bee babies. 
drone, well, there's worker brood and drone brood. So the worker brood are the, the worker bees that do all the work, and the drone bees are the boy bees that don't do any work. They just eat honey, but then they fly and impregnate new queens. So they're really the carriers of the genetics of that hive um, to be passed on to other queens. <coughs> so it sounds like Jen learned that by keeping a close eye on the hives that you and could actually health, yeah. assist the bees in keeping the hives clean healthy. and getting uh, keeping the bees healthy without using chemicals. Right. So we, and then she eventually wrote a book called Intuitive Treatment-Free Beekeeping um, that she published, self-published. That's really good. And um, basically we're following in her footsteps and we've never used anything except the diatomaceous earth in our hives. And our bees are doing fine. I mean, we I did have a couple years ago... Uh, I had like 11 hives and six of them died and it, and <clears throat> it happened because my mom was hit by a truck and I, I didn't have time to go check them as regularly as I had been. And so, you know, part of it is, is that, um, stewardship where you go in and, you know, at least once a month you, you check them out and then, you know, you help them by taking <clears throat> out disease, um, diseased combs and things. And we also <clears throat> are doing top bar hives, which um, is very different from what commercially is done with the Langstroth hives. Um, the Langstroth hives have a... Those are the ones that look like boxes. Right. And they stack up on top of each other. Mm -hmm. So people that do that type of beekeeping actually get more honey. Um, but um, it's very heavy, like you put a queen excluder, and so there's these upper boxes, supers, that are only honey because the queen can't get up there and lay her eggs and stuff. And in and, and our boxes, we don't have a queen excluder, and so possibly the queen could lay eggs in every <clears throat> bar. Um, and so really you have to kind of have a really well-established hive that then the last several bars they don't put their babies in, and then those are the ones you can harvest for honey. Um, but once we pull a, a comb out, we, we don't ever put it back in, and so then they have to rebuild their comb, and so therefore they spend time rebuilding the comb, and therefore we don't get as much honey as they do with the Langstroth, but we also feel good about that because we're promoting um, the bees to... Uh, um, the wax and the honey not to be contaminated with pests, um, diseases, um, or even pesticides that they may get into because a bee colony will have a five to six mile radius from their location. And so we can't control, you know, when maybe two miles away, they're going to go up this road with the roundup and, and who's going to be spraying. So there's no spraying on the property where our bees are, but they do have this like five to six mile radius. So, you know, we can't control where they're going to go to get their nectar and their pro um, pollen. Um, so it's, and we're not in the middle of an orchard, which, you know, that that's why they can, you know, say that this is lehua honey or kiavi honey or clover honey or whatever is because that they're in a monoculture. So we feel like that by not being in a monoculture, we, we have like a wildflower situation where there's multiple different flowers that are in our honey. Um, and that <clears throat> also the, the honey 
and the wax isn't contaminated because once we've pulled it out, um, we're not putting it back in. So it's just a totally different style of beekeeping. And we feel like less bees get killed in this process also because every time you stack those boxes on top of each other, a certain amount of bees are going to die. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's not like bees never die with the process we have because sometimes the comb will fall down into the hive and a certain amount of bees can die if that happens so but but your it sounds like the original goal was to get more bees into the world and have healthier bees without using chemicals right and in and fact I see I see you have okay. this beautiful tray of products <laughs> in front of me there must be a, a dozen different types of beautiful candles and some honey and some this is um, honey wine or mead that mm -hmm. I'm also making for mm -hmm. personal friends and family use. And um, actually, I've made quite a bit of it, and, and I'm um, moving towards distilling some of it so that I can then put the propolis in that so that when I do my propolis tincture, it's all made from my own mm -hmm. bees. And also, um, <clears throat> the way that I'm making the mead is different than... Um, other people have because most people use honey and because of the way that we beekeep when, and because when we pull a comb, we can't put it back in, um, we get a certain amount of nectar and the nectar is um, in the process of becoming honey by being dehydrated by the bees and then once it's dehydrated enough that it won't ferment, you know, they cap it and then it's honey. And so when we process it, we separate the honey from the nectar and I have many gallons of nectar, and then with that, because I didn't want to waste anything, and so with that nectar, um, I uh, recently started making June, which is um, like kombucha, but with honey, well, in my case, with nectar instead of sugar, mm -hmm. um, because I felt like if it's going to, if it just is, has a higher water content, which could cause it to ferment, then... <clears throat> You know, I just add water and make it ferment. So we're making a really nice June with some green tea, and we got a, a, a June scoby from Coco Lulu, Karen. And um, there's so much fermentation going on in my kitchen with all the mead, and now with the June is that when I wash my wax to get the rest of the honey out and I get this honey water that I'm also using for the jun. Um, if I don't get to it in time and I just have it sitting on my counter in a jar, it makes its own scoby. Mm. So I'm getting scobies coming out of the air mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're producing their own because there's so much of the, the spores in, in the air mm -hmm. from the fermentations that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of fun. And so I just separate the honey from the nectar and then I use the nectar and I make either the honey wine or the june. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I and I, did you explain the difference between, I know nectar is more watery. Right. And how do the bees make it into honey? Um, they have this proboscis, this kind of tongue or something that they stir it with, and then they fan it. So I, I'm not the scientist. Um, I, I'm very practical and do a lot of work. So I didn't study mm -hmm. like as much as my daughter did, you know, about exactly how they do it. But they collect the nectar from the flower. They bring it in. They feed themselves and each other, and then they put it, and then whatever's excess they put into the hexagons, and then they stir it and and until it's dehydrated, and then they they cap it. And of course, they would rather eat fresh food, mm -hmm. so they eat fresh nectar and fresh pollen, mm -hmm. and the pollen is their 
protein source and the nectar is their carbohydrate source. And then they um, turn the pollen into what's called bee bread. Um, they kind of come in with these little packets, but then they process that through their systems and then they pack that away into the comb and that's called bee bread, which you can eat <clears throat> Just like just eat the comb that has the the pollen in it, and it's a, like a superfood with protein. Mm-hmm. And um, it's easier for us to digest that than the pollen that you get from the health food store because when you just knock those little packets of pollen off of them and eat it, then it's just our bodies don't actually have the enzymes that we need to break it down. So it's good, but it's a little work for our digestion to figure it out. And so if you just eat the bee bread, chew it up, spit out the wax, because uh, you don't want to eat too much wax. Over time, that can not be good for your digestion. Um, and um, so then there's the bee bread. And so d- Dawn, tell us about where where can people get these beautiful candles and, and what other products do you have like is bee bread a product you have i know you i can see you have honey so i have honey and candles and actually recently um the last several months i've been making soap Uh, i've been having fun doing that and in the past and hopefully in the future i made like a, a healing body butter salve and a lip balm and um i make the the gin and the mead and um propolis tinctures coming up and um, also I've been asked to and was just looking into how to do that is make those little um, like cloth um, impregnated with beeswax wraps that you can put um, over your food. your glass or your Tupperware or your food itself to um, you know keep it fresh in the in the refrigerator so I'm gonna um, start doing that um, actually who's it um, Deanne is opening a store right on the main street here. And she came and asked me, will you make those little things? I'd rather get them from you than the mainland. So I'm going to make the um, wax wraps. That'll be coming up soon. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I'm hoping to be able to continue making all the things that I make. Uh, it's very satisfying for me to do crafts and art and I have uh, a booth now we are I was for five years I've been doing the market at the Javi market and then when the pandemic happened um, we shut down last March and there's been no market until early January of this year so it's like nine months without a market well and for those people who don't know about the market can you say where it is and when it's open? <coughs> so it's every Saturday from 8 till 12.30 at the what used to be the Kohala Village Hub Inn um, that burned down a couple years ago. So there's a big slab that's directly across the street from where the market was at the Banyan Trees um, on the slab, uh, cement slab that's kind of in front of now the barn and the hale and the, the hotel or motel or whatever the Kohala Village Inn is. And so, yeah, luckily the Dornces have allowed us to have that property. And the, the, the difficult thing is that every person has to get their own insurance. Um, and so, so there are several people that haven't joined us yet. We hope that all the ones that are vending down on the street will come and join us so we can have a bigger market. Also, we're getting a, a grant um, to 
have more tent so that um, because right now we have like you know, eight to ten vendors and we are all undercover. There's a tent and there's some building that covers us, but the rest of it's just the open slab. So we're hoping to get a big, huge tent um, so we can have many more vendors and have more people come. And there was one um, I got insurance that was the cheapest one I could find at the time, which was like three seventy six a year. Um, but somebody else found an insurance company that did it for two fifty uh, per year. And um, so that's the the snafu for some people about being able to vend. But we're there every single Saturday from eight till twelve thirty right across the street from the banyan trees mm-hmm. and um, it's really nice to to be back um, vending and we're all doing uh, mask wearing and social distancing and, and all of that so that we can stay open and um, be be a market for our community again because we've really missed the both the community and the vendors have missed having a market up here and all most of the other markets around the island did not shut down i think that the people that own the the land at the surety that owns the banyan trees just didn't want to do the market anyways and as soon as they had a good excuse not to they shut down and didn't want to open again so don if somebody can't come to the market is there another way that uh, they can contact you about the products or do you have a website yes i actually have a nice website Still needs some work, but um, it's bedivinehawaii.com. And, um, um, and yeah, people, in fact, during the, the time that there was no market, um, people would call me and just come over and pick stuff up. You know, people that are my regular customers. Um, so w- be divine, is that B as in B, B-E-E, divine? Yes, B-E-E, uh, D-I-V-I-N-E. Um, hawaii.com and also we just set up uh, you can look that up on Google um, and it'll take you right to my phone number and location and my and my website so that just happened last week <laughs> and uh, I'm going to be working more on the website too and also uh, like on the website in a way where you can you know push the button shop or something and actually order things um, I still would prefer to do you know sales individually and not have to like ship things (laughs) but um, certainly you can get a hold of me and I can say my phone number yeah Um, 808-895-7870 you can call me and I can um, you know meet up with you and get your product well I know we only have a couple more minutes and I'm wondering if anyone out there has any questions for Dawn she's at 884-KNKR or 884-5657 Otherwise, any advice about bees or, or honey that you sell? Um, I, I would like to say that they did some studies and found, you know, that beeswax actually cleans the air. It can kill bacteria, you know, whereas most candles are made from, like, petroleum products and other things that are actually um, somewhat toxic to be putting in the air. So it's definitely a more natural um, product to use um, that doesn't put poisons in the air. And um, and they're beautiful, and it's really nice to work with um, the, the, the natural um, beeswax and work with the bees. And honey is really a healing salve, too, yes, isn't it? Yes, it's so good. We've even put it in people's wounds before, and, like, my mom had a wound. In fact, we put honey at, in a wound. It wasn't... Um, it was a big, huge gouge that was deep, you know, that she got, uh, she, and she's in her 80s. And we put honey in there, and then we covered it with a scoby. 
uh, a piece of SCOBY and a Band-Aid, and it actually started healing from the bottom up, you know, granulating really well. Um, so uh, honey, you know, is recommended to use for people with allergies, and it's best to have the honey that's, you know, from your local area. So it'll help you not react so much to the pollens in that area if you're allergic to them. And it uh, reacts very differently in the body than sugar does <clears throat> um, because it's not a processed uh, product. It's, it's um, you know, we don't heat it or um, do anything to it um, to change it in any way. So it's coming directly from nature. It has pollens in it. And, um, and this is your honey. And yes. now I've heard, so there are some commercially made honeys that are not, they have added additives or water added or cooked, but your honey is not right. That way. It's completely raw and and treatment free, and uh, I think it's hard to find treatment free honey that's that's raw and untreated um, anymore, unless you actually know your beekeeper. So I think we have a unique product that's. Um, so know your farmer, know your beekeeper. <laughs> Yeah, it's and very important that we become more sustainable and that um, we buy locally um, the food that we can and grow locally. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dawn, for being our special guest today. And you've been listening to Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala. See you till next week. Aloha. Aloha. Days gone.